Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Modern Retail Podcast. I'm Kale Guthrie Weissman, the editor in chief here at Modern Retail. And this week, I'm really excited. We have Danny Tang. He's the founder and CEO of Boxu, which is a, a Japanese snack subscription company, but a lot more than that. They've been expanding a lot. They've been, I feel like you guys have been, had a lot of announcements of late. Um, <laughs> I've been trying to keep track of them, but we'll get all into that. I also just want to talk because you guys have been around for a while and subscription boxes were really popular and then they weren't and now they're sort of coming back but I feel like you've you've stayed strong with this. Um and so I want to talk with about that business model because I think it's a really fascinating business model. But Danny, thank you so much for joining. How are you doing? Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be here. For those who don't know, want to just give sort of the the long and the short of Boxu. How did it start? What was the idea? All that jazz. Sure. So, um really brief backstory is that I was born in New York, raised in New Jersey. Uh, when I went, I went to Stanford and studied psychology and Japanese. After I graduated, got a job at Google working in digital marketing. This was in 2008. Um, after just about a year, I ended up quitting and moving to Tokyo. It was always a big dream of mine to live in Japan. And so I kind of packed everything, went there. It was supposed to just be a one-year study abroad program, but I loved it so much that I wanted to stay. And so I job hunted, got a job at Rakuten in 2010 as one of their first bilingual non-Japanese people to come in and help them do a lot of global business development and business strategy. That was a, a really fun job, although very stressful in a lot of ways. Um, got business fluent in Japanese there. Most importantly, though, got to live for a total of four years in Japan, got to travel throughout, eat a lot of amazing food and snacks that were really regionally limited from these like small family businesses. And I moved back to New York almost nine years ago now. And um, one thing led to another. I stumbled into entrepreneurship after having studied CS at Columbia for a bit. And kind of like all these seemingly random, meandering life experiences and passions I was chasing after. Um, in my 20s, my family was very much like, what are you doing with your life? Uh, it all kind of culminated into me being able to start Boxu in late 2015 as a solo bootstrap founder. So I did the website myself. I did the sourcing. I did the marketing. I packed the boxes in my living room and kind of launched in April 2016. So it was about six years ago from today. What was the in initial idea with Boxu in 2015? Yeah, um, the kind of initial idea was, why don't I work on something that I'm personally going to be really passionate about, even if it's nitty gritty and really like, um, you know, painful at times? Because um, the kind of fuller story version, if we ever have time to get into it, is that Box was kind of my fourth pivot. Really? I actually worked on some other stuff before that I was not as passionate about. And when I kind of was pivoting again, I was like, you know, well, let me do something that I actually care about. And this is going to be my last try. And I wanted something that had a recurring subscription model that like could allow me to bootstrap because I didn't have any funding. Um, and so that's kind of where that idea came about. But then I looked and did a little competitive research when I came up with the idea of doing a Japanese subscription box. And there were already like 20 players in the space actually at that time. Um, and I was like, whoa. But then all of them were not doing what I wanted to do. They were mostly kind of like exoticizing Japan as it's been done for decades with a lot of like cutesy, anime, wacky stuff. But I wanted to really showcase these like family business makers and these generational products. Um, nobody was doing that in a big way. And so it really empowered me to feel like there's validation here for this type of product or market. But let me do it in a much better premium, authentic way. Um, on a deeper level, so to kind of finish up quickly, it was also because I moved back to New York from Asia after living there for four years, and I really wanted to create a company to help bridge cultures. Like, I kind of had this reverse culture shock and felt some minority stuff going on when I moved back, and so I wanted to intentionally from the beginning um, get 
like non-Asians to try delicious Japanese snacks and feel a little closer to it. So when you were initially thinking about it in 2015, did you do any any sort of research about figuring out who the target demographic was as compared to these other 20, 20 you know, subscription boxes out there? Or did you, or ha- was it that you had connections or knew of, you know, the brands that you want to work with in Japan that you thought would resonate more? Um, it was kind of a combination of both where I did immediately start trying to survey. Like I asked a bunch of friends to take surveys about what they would be looking for. And I also knew that the best way to do it was to have an MVP so when I, I concepted in November 2015, but by January, I already had like a, like a beta box for it, basically, mm-hmm. that was snacks that I bought in Japan and brought back my suitcase. I happened to have a tri- trip there over New Year's that year. And then like brought it back my suitcase and packed it myself, had like a sticker and like a, a ribbon. That was pretty much, that was all on this like <laughs> craft box I bought from Paper Source down the street. And, um, but like, you know, I sent them like, Posted on Facebook, got friends to sign up for 50% off, and then like surveyed and interviewed them afterwards. That really helped me figure out, do people even like this? What do I need to do to improve? Like, why was this a bad experience or a good experience? And so that type of like MVP research was how I eventually then got to launch in April 2016 in a kind of first version of it. And we're like on version four or five at this point now with the box. So, Wow. How did you go about sourcing it? Was it individual, you know, company by company, like talking with different, you know, people in Japan or yeah, how did, how did you find who you would work with to be featured? Yeah. So I already knew a lot of the brands I wanted to work with, um, because since I'd lived there and I'd eaten a lot of these amazing kind of authentic or modern traditional snacks. Um, however, you know, I was tiny when I launched in April, 2016, I had like 40 subscribers. And so most of which were kind of friends supporting me. Um, there was, you know, the dirty secret, I feel like in a lot of these, D2C or subscription box, like bootstrap businesses, is that you buy retail early on. <laughs> like, that's pretty much all you can do. And so early on, I would buy it there or I would buy it online on Rakuten or Amazon Japan, ship it to my friend's place in Tokyo in his small Tokyo apartment. And he would like repack it into like larger cartons for me and then bring it to the post office and ship it to me. It was a really scrappy beginnings. Um, eventually, I was able to develop more of these direct relationships with the the vendors in Japan, but that took like months and years and a lot of like hard work of them trusting me, like paying first, you know, doing like do on deposit as opposed to have any credit terms. Um, like that was pretty much how we worked with all of our vendors for the first two, three years, which was really tough for cash flow, but it was what you yeah. had to do. How is how do you work with vendors now? What has changed? Yeah, so now we pretty much work directly with all the vendors in Japan, and we've negotiated like net 30 or beyond that terms with all of them, because we're, we're good for it. Like we've been paying them on time for years, and that really helps with our cash flow and just like with just fewer payments, so we're not paying every time we reorder something. So it's all like kind of invoiced. So talk to me about customer acquisition in 2016. You said, you know, 40 people, your, your best friends, but I feel like that was also, you know... It was it was a different landscape than it is now, but you you said the competition was pretty fierce. So what what did you find? How were you finding the people, and what were your overall learnings that you had from that first year in business? Yeah, so I mean, back then, given that we didn't have any external funding, yeah, I had to be as guerrilla as possible about all my acquisition. It was like word of mouth, referral program, in kind with affiliates and influencers. Um, like I was trying to do everything. I like would go table at events, especially if it was free, like at a Columbia startup event or something like that. 
um, just to get the word out there. And, uh, you know, was able to grow organically, I guess, quote unquote, with this style <laughs> to like past 200 subscribers by the end of that first half year. So I was like pretty excited about that since there was like no CAC besides my life and time. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but as we kept growing, was able to, you know, continue growing little by little. In 2017, for the first time, started like advertising a tiny bit. But another little like secret, I don't know if people know this, but a lot of Facebook employees get like $500 of credit a month or something like that. And I had some friends that were there. So I asked them to like help me out by using their credit to advertise for me. And so like things like that, I didn't actually start doing real paid media until 2018 uh, when our revenues grew a lot more. It just was hard. Having worked in digital marketing in that space, I knew that like if you're just doing like $10 a day of budget or something, you're not going to be able to scale or get the algorithm to be efficient. And so you need a certain level of scale before putting money into it. And so everything early on was non-paid media as much as possible. So what clicked? The, yeah, I want to talk about the growth that you saw over those years, but it sounds like 2018 was the year you began to hit scale. What changed? Uh, so a couple of things changed. One was that in late 2017, we finally... Um, partnered up with a 3PL warehouse in Osaka, Japan, and outsourced all the packing and shipping to them. Before that, it was me and like the interns or early employees we had <laughs> packing boxes ourselves in New York City area. That was really stressful, like doing that every month. But once we had a warehouse that we can now focus on branding, marketing, kind of like really scaling, growing, we didn't have to freak out about what happens when we get to a thousand subscribers, how we're going to pack that all. Um, that was a big key that unlocked it. And then, you know, that was able to grow much faster. Number two was we had a, a couple of viral uh, Facebook campaigns that worked pretty well for us in early 2018. Um, one was about Japanese Kit Kats and people are really into that. And we did like a Valentine's Day tie up to that. And that like actually tripled our subscriber count in just one month, which was really great, but um, broke everything. <laughs> Turns out hyper growth is terrible if, unless you're ready for it. That was one of my first failures and early learnings. There were so much, so many angry customers in turn during that month. <laughs> Talk about that more. What? So it was pretty much you just got too many customers at once and you weren't able to fill, fill it all. Was, mm -hmm. it the, was there a wait list sort of what, what happened? Yeah. So basically in early 2018, we had about 1,000 subscribers. And in just one month, we grew that to over 3,000. We were like, oh my God, this is great. Um, and it was because of this viral Facebook kind of campaign and ads. But then like we kept growing and we thought it was okay. But then what ended up happening was the warehouse in Japan was not equipped to deal with triple the amount of orders. And that was way before I had like a logistics team or director where I was still learning all of that. Um, and so it would take them like two weeks to even ship out the first box for a lot of these customers because it's so inundated. And because of that, CX was blowing up. And at that time, I was pretty much still doing all of the customer support with like one freelancer helping me essentially. And that was really painful that, um, and so we had to do a lot of refunds, which is like make feel happy. Um, and it got so bad that in February, um, I had my first business trip to Japan, like, like officially business trip for the company. And we went to go visit the warehouse, and that was our first time visiting them. And instead of actually talking strategy, I actually got into the warehouse itself and like packed the boxes because I just needed to go faster. They didn't have enough manpower. So me and my two teammates at the time, um, like we went in and we probably not legal, probably most American warehouses would have not allowed that. <laughs> <laughs> 
because there's probably liability issues, but it was a little more like casual in Osaka, Japan. And, um, and so went in and like packed boxes just to get it out, just to like that minute faster, that day faster. So did you then have to bring on another 3PL? What was, what were, what, what happened after that? Yeah. So after that, we learned that before you do any type of big campaign and growth, let your warehouse know in advance, staff up, get ready for it. Like give them like a month notice so they can hire more people. Um, you know, make sure your CX is ready for it. Make sure that you actually even have the inventory for us. You don't emergency reorder halfway through the month, which is really stressful as well. Um, all of these things were <laughs> big learnings that um, growth comes at a cost if you don't do it correctly. Were you bootstrapped throughout this all? We were bootstrapped fully until 2019. So three year, three plus years. And then mostly bootstrap still until just last year in 2021 when we raised our Series A. So I'd raised a couple of small safe rounds in 2019 and 2020, but like for the most part, still mostly bootstrapped with really honed in on our LTV to CAC, um, lifetime value to customer acquisition costs, which is like the most important ratio for any D2C company, as well as did a lot of debt financing, which had its plus and minuses, um, less dilution, but really stressful. <laughs> we'll be right back after this message from our sponsor. Please stay with us. I feel like debt comes and goes in waves of, you know, when, when founders are thinking about it, when it's not such a hot market, they take it out. But talk to me about why did you take on debt? Was it just because of dilution and you didn't want to give up, you know, shares? What was your thought process behind that? Yeah, uh, that's a really great question, especially because nowadays there are a lot of these alternative financing yeah. solutions that never used to exist. And for us, we were one of the early customers of ClearBank, for example, in 2018, mm. or ClearCo as they're called now. And a big reason I started taking on this type of debt financing with them and other players was twofold. One, we needed capital to accelerate the growth. Like we were growing, it was exciting, and the cash flow was hard as we paid everything up front, as I mentioned before at that time. Um, but then two was I couldn't get investors. I had tried talking early on. Like maybe if I kept going at it, I would have found some. But like I talked to maybe a small handful. And early on in that time period, 2016, 2017, I was like laughed out of the room. Um, they were, it was seriously somewhat condescending at times because they'd be like, oh, that's such a cute passion project or that's, oh, that's so niche what you're doing. And I was just like, oh man, there's like a bunch of straight white men investors looking at this and seeing that it's this like tiny little niche thing. And I'm like, Asian food and cuisine is huge, especially Japanese snacks. And this is only this, the first step to like many other things I want to do. But even then they like, kept thinking, it was like, oh, you're going to be at like a thousand subscribers max is what a lot of people said to me. And I was, and then plus sub boxes, as you had very smartly said before, went through different cycles of boom and bust, right? Um, and around 2016-ish, it was definitely in a bust phase, I think, 2017-ish. It was like post birch box, etc. Um, it's been a bit of a boom in the last few years with COVID and with these other kind of more successful ones. But um, yeah, in, in general, that was a, a rough period. So I couldn't, equity finance. And I was like, you know what, then fine, let me go do this debt financing thing. Let me put down personal guarantee on some of these because, you know, really risky, but I was really all in on this solo founder. Um, and unfortunately, it worked out for us where then we grew, um, grew past a lot of the debt and it was able to pay it back and then raise a pretty nice round last year. Yeah, it was 22 million. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. Wow. Well, congratulations. That's Thank a, you. That's a, that's a great Series A. 
Uh, it, it was really fun. <laughs> I, I've never heard someone describe uh, raising a round of money, funding as fun, but maybe it was. <laughs> it helps when you have strong numbers. I mean, it was still painful at times. I still got a lot of no's, you know, to be real. But like, it helps when you have strong numbers and you find the right timing and you're essentially just bragging about yourself for an hour on a call. It's the way I positively framed in my mind so I can keep doing it. <laughs> <laughs> so can you talk about just sort of what what growth and expansion has looked like over the years? Was it about entering new categories of Japanese snacks? Sort of how, how did you see the growth and expansion of Boxu over the last four years? Yeah, so um, there's been a lot of ideas for that. I mean, our core product is the monthly curated snack subscription box with these family businesses and every product in the box is all Japan exclusive. So if you can find it in America, it will never go into the box. And, um, and so that's kind of the core thing where we're setting ourselves up for being curators, tastemakers, kind of like getting people to trust us. Like it's the same box everybody gets every month. There's no customization they can do just yet in anything. Um, but in some ways, people kind of want that because they don't know what Japanese snacks they like or are good. And so like I still final taste test everything that goes in a box, for example, six years later. And if it doesn't taste good, it doesn't go in. But kind of using that type of brand cachet that we built up, how can we keep expanding into other kind of verticals or kind of e-commerce plays, but still be a curator? And uh, the kind of number two expansion we did... Um, that launched in early 2018, so pretty much around the same time we kind of got the warehouse in Japan, was called Boxu Market, which is a kind of e-commerce store and marketplace that um, carry way more than just Japanese snacks now. We have like home goods, Japanese knives, glassware, all these artisanal handcrafted goods and like instant premium ramens, all there that all ship directly from Japan as well to you know customers like globally to about 100 countries where we've shipped before. So that was the next expansion that has grown quite a lot in the last four years. And now we have like 600 SKUs on market of all different types of products. Um, and then most recently, as of just a few months ago, we launched a box of grocery here in the U.S., uh, which is kind of being an online kind of pan-Asian grocery store, although with like a focus on Japanese kind of products, given that that's where a lot of our strong branding is. But similar to how H Mart and 99 Ranch and Mitsuwa all are like Korean, Chinese, and Japanese respectively, but then carry all types of products. It's like that type of thing where I see that there's a lot of pie and a lot of market space for different players to come in and do things differently. Like our mission for box market and now with grocery is to like allow access to people all across America and the world. So box grocery already ships nationwide um, because that's all like non-perishable shelf stable products for now. Yeah. So that was that's my next question. Box there's there's no fresh in there. It's only box products? Yeah, we are planning on introducing eventually um, frozen and alcohol into the mix. So essentially trying to be like an Asian Thrive Market, who I really look up to. I love Thrive Market. And um, and I'm friends with the founder CEO, Nick, as well. And uh, he has given me some advice about stuff. And like, we can go a long way, he said, with like non-perishable frozen alcohol uh, type of products. And there's a lot of fresh players in this space already that are doing some cool stuff. But fresh is... Uh, I've also heard fresh is a really easy way if you want to just burn a lot of cash really quickly <laughs> and, you know, from the storage to the expiration dates, how short the dates are to even like if you're delayed in shipping, you have to toss the whole thing. It's like a bit of a, a really difficult supply chain. So very much a lot of respect to those in those space. But for us, we want to do all the other things because that allows us to ship nationwide. 
Is the grocery, does the thesis stay the same? Is it exclusive to Japan you can't get in the U.S.? Or are you being a little bit more lenient with that? Where there, you could, there's something you could get at Mitsua that's at your, um, at, in your grocery store? Yeah, so the idea of Box of Grocery is that it has a lot of the popular, beloved items that you could get at the grocery stores. And um, however, our target audience there is not New York, SF, LA. Um, in fact, from the data we've had from the last three months of running it, Texas and Florida are actually two of our biggest states. Like, so it's like kind of the middle of the country, Midwest and South, places where they have to drive like two hours to get to their closest grocery store. And with fuel costs the way they are nowadays, lots of people, it's hard to justify that. And so with this, we can ship it right to them from everything from sauces and oils and ingredients to snacks and instant foods. Um, and eventually, like I said, frozen and alcohol. I really want to get into the space where I can introduce awesome sake and yuzu shoe and these other things to Americans. And I feel like alcohol would be huge. Yeah. It's a, it's a lot more Pan-Asian as well. So for this one, some of our bestsellers are like Korean, like instant spicy noodles and Chinese snacks and things like that too. With these new you know revenue lines, grocery um, and marketplace, is subscription still the brunt of your sales? Is that what's sort of leading it? Or are you seeing what is sort of, what is the makeup of, of, of the three different channels? Subscription is still the majority. Um, that's kind of our core thing. And we're seeing the other two, Market is kind of like this extension of subscription where a lot of people buy from there, the snacks they ate in the box and they want more of it. So it acts as like a replenishment access type of situation, which has been really great. And we're working on ways of expanding that a lot more to get make it a lot more friendly for customers, um, for active subscribers and members. Grocery currently is like just one-time orders, but we're planning on introducing some type of digital membership to tie everything all together in where maybe they'll get free shipping on grocery if they sign up for kind of like a delivery pass type of situation. Um, and it'll give them access to different um, other products too. Are most of the grocery uh, customers the same, or subscribers, would you say? Um, no, they're actually like from, what I mean, there is certainly overlap and there's a lot of opportunity for us to leverage our existing subscriber base to then upsell mm-hmm. them to market and grocery. But we are seeing a lot of new customers and grocery that are not overlapping with Box because... Box generally has a slightly more higher average income customer. It's a bit of a premium product. It ships directly from Japan. It's people that are looking for these new experiences. Whereas grocery, there's still a bit of that discovery piece for sure. But a lot of times it's like, um, it's we're pretty competitive pricing on the website and we're giving free shipping at like reasonable tiers and stuff like that. And so for a lot of people, it's like a good way of getting into Asian snacks and products without paying the big premium you might have to if it's shipped directly from Japan. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Because grocery ship from you, the U.S. Yeah. Are Are you doing different marketing campaigns for for all the different ones, and how are you going about those? Yeah, we we are. It's uh, we actually don't currently do any marketing campaigns for market. We're using that purely as like a LTV extension type of um, expansion type of play, which is working out pretty well. There are plans for that in the future, but the main funnel right now is to get people to subscribe to Box, because then that will naturally get them purchased on market. And for grocery. We just launched it, so we're trying to be pretty uh, mindful of our unit economics of it so that we don't burn too much of the cash we just raised and trying to get it to a good place before we put too much fuel on fire. But for that, we are doing a bunch of um, Facebook, Instagram ads, which have been working pretty well, to be honest. Um, whereas for Box, that's um, been a lot of YouTube influencer um, acquisition for us. So a good majority mm-hmm. of our acquisition for Box um, has been through YouTube creators kind of 
um, doing partnerships, integration, sponsorships, and that's been pretty awesome. So I want to get into the overall subscription business, and I guess my way in, and this is just from my own my own experience, but how much of your box customers are people buying gifts, do you find? Is it most not a lot? Is it a lot? And then what are you seeing in terms of churn with that? Yeah, so we have about, during like a normal time period, like non-holiday season, we're seeing something like an 80-20 sub to gift. So it's mostly subscriptions. Mostly people are getting it. Um, they might still be gifting it to somebody else, but they'll be subscribing for them. So the, our gift skews are not super common. Come holiday season, though, that like kind of goes up to almost parity. I think we see it becomes like a 60-40 sub to gift situation. And in terms of churn, that is a good point. I mean, gifting is a little bit tough in that way. We used to offer like a one-month gift box as well, where you just get it once and then, you know, it is not a subscription product. But then what we found when we did our LTV analysis of that is that these customers aren't coming back and it's just not there. It's not worth the LTV to CAC of this kind of cohort. And so we've actually gotten rid of the one-month gift box and just have three, six, 12-month options on our gift page. And that makes it a lot better so that it kind of justifies a lot of the spend we're doing to get people to come to our website. Have you found, you know, you, you mentioned how there have been ebbs and flows with subscription boxes, you know, post Birch box, sort of a COVID boom. Now I think we're sort of in a, a mid area, though. Maybe I'm correct. Maybe I'm incorrect about that. You're the expert here. But what are you, do you do you, have you found that your business has followed in those sort of peaks and troughs? Um, I would say that we have actually been nonstop growing since I launched in 2016. That's great. Yeah. Um, in fact, we've doubled our kind of revenue and customer base every year since 2018, um, after we kind of got out of our initial early bird stages. And um, and it's been kind of really good in that way because, in my opinion, the subscription box boom and bust, there is some macro trends that we're certainly riding, like COVID was a big boom for us once we solved through a lot of the global shipping issues, which there were plenty of at that time, still are actually. But, um, but be- I think what helped was that we have a very strong underlying product that changes every month that a lot of people get a lot of value from. It's not so kind of fatty like Birchbox was where you get these kind of samples you pay for and then people just go buy it on Amazon or Sephora afterwards. Like what we're doing, you can only get it from us. These products that you taste, you can only buy from us on market. So it really created this moat around what we were doing and really providing um, an experience for customers. And that's what they're really looking for in the end um, is some type of experiential kind of buy. And so if you can give them that on a changing monthly basis, which is a ton of work that we change up the snacks every month, they're all brand new for the most part. And then you, we write a culture guide magazine and we're trying to integrate some more multimedia stuff into it as well, um, going forward. And so people, our customers love that. So have you, do you ever reintroduce a product that you had say a few years ago or is everything brand new? Um, we actually set some parameters around that mainly because it's like almost by popular demand. Customers want Uh, We survey um, our subscriber base every month about what they liked in the box, what they didn't. So we have all this taste preference data, as well as sales data from market to see what they would buy or not. So it really helps us to kind of cross-reference that and make data-driven decisions about the curation. So in addition to, of course, it tasting good, we see like, well, how did this rank? How did this rate? How were sales? Um, Things like that. And so like maximum twice a year, we can use the same snack is like about six months apart is the kind of rule about it. And then within every curation, there's a maximum of two that are repeats. So, and it kind of depends month to month how that all plays out. And so you said the early bird times were kind of, you know, being a startup is always difficult growing and costs are high. And then you sort of hit that that 
peak of going up in 2018. How has profitability played into this? I think I read a Fastco piece where it said in 2021, you guys were profitable. Is that continuing or sort of how have the unique economics worked out? Yeah, that, that's one of the things that I'm most proud of from early from last year was that we were mostly bootstrapped. And then in early 2021, we flipped to EBITDA profitability and was on like a 20 plus million ARR at that time. Um, which then allowed me to go like, okay, I think I have the numbers to go out and fundraise now. Um, I think this that sounds, uh, peop- that sounds like good numbers. It sounds like potentially good space to be in. Um, and from a position of strength, right? Because if I'm profitable, then that means we have unlimited runway, which I always joke just means we're a real business. And um, and that like means that we're not going to collapse if the fundraise doesn't you know go through. But mm-hmm. that was um, pretty important, and that's something that we're always mindful of is even though we're doing this new expansion and of course a new expansion, you're hiring people, there's a lot of upfront capital you're investing into. So even though that has a burn again, um, the core business, which we separate out in PLs as much as we can internally, um, is we still want that to stay profitable because that we always want that fallback in case any type of expansion doesn't work out or we need to pivot it. You know, at least we know we can cut and still be fine. Makes sense. All right, we're just about running out of time, but I wanted to ask you, and we've gone a little bit into this with grocery, but now that you have this fundraise, you have money, you're expanding, what are what are your big goals for 2022 and 2023? I have a lot of big goals. So these are the three main products I talked <laughs> about, box, market, and grocery. I mean, the plan, of course, is keep growing grocery. When we launched um, a few months ago um, in Q4, we had about 300 SKUs. And now we're already at, already at over a thousand SKUs, and the plan is to get to over two thousand by end of year. And so, like pretty rapid expansion of the categories and, and products we have there. Um, we really want to launch a digital membership, potentially called Boxu Plus, that will get people benefits and all three of these products that we offer. Uh, we would love to also start getting into creating our own line because we know what our customers like, we know what tastes good, and what people like. Kind of our own line of snacks and types of Boxu branded products. Um, to then get into retail and really tie it all together. I could probably go on and on, but there's a lot of these and a lot of my smart teammates are working on it, and as well as me at the helm with a lot of these uh, exciting new uh, business expansion projects. But yeah, more, lots of more to come from Boxu. Really exciting. Danny, thank you so much for joining me. I love this conversation. Thank you for having me. It's been wonderful. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Modern Retail Podcast, a show by Digiday. If you haven't already, please do subscribe and send this podcast over to a friend who you know would enjoy it. See you next week.